And I've been going back to this letter by Martin Luther King. Um, and I go back to it like repeatedly because it, so many times when people say things like they support the police or this isn't the right way of protesting, um, I get where those people are coming from and I hear what they're saying, but like you, I don't think you understand like the long history that like, you know, it's, it's, it was by no coincidence and it wasn't by the right way of protesting that black people got the, the right to vote <laughs> um, or black people even got this thing called the civil rights law or anything like that. Like it, you know, um, black history and the, the story that is like the ongoing story that is black liberation was filled with riots and rebellions and protesting and um, blocking sidewalks and the destruction of property. So, um, you know, before, you know, we don't even really got to say much about it. Let me um, share this with you. Do you have it pulled up already? Let me get it up right now. All right, just, so. Um, A letter, right? Yeah. We're going to just go ahead and read right from the letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King. Um, it starts with a little bit of, um, it starts with like a little introduction to give you some context of what, where this letter is coming from. And, you know, we don't have to read straight through it because if you have any thoughts of like, just, you know, any thoughts that come about, like, Let's just finish off the sentence and then we could talk about it and then just work our way through this letter because it's, it's really important and it's um, timely and hasn't it's crazy. I think it's just bit. so crazy. Yeah, it's relevant today. And this was 1963. Like, why, why, why? Like and I, we could pull writings from the 1860s as well that are still just as relevant. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so I'll start I guess and then we could just like popcorn it um I really really love this letter because unlike other like um put, I think this this letter is like central it's like required reading and like part of like a political it's a, like a political reading as well a text of like political theory um but it's very straightforward and it's not like these other books are like political theory where like they they are creating terms apart. to define yeah so this is really good stuff um letter from mm -hmm. birmingham jail by martin luther by martin luther king jr from the birmingham jail where he was imprisoned as a participant in nonviolent demonstrations against segregation dr mlk jr wrote in longhand the letter which follows it was his response to a public statement of concern and caution issued by eight white religious leaders in the South. Dr. King, who was born in 1929, did his undergraduate work in Morehouse College, attended the Integrated Crozer Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania, one of six black pupils among a hundred students and the president of his class and won a fellowship to Boston University for his PhD. So it starts. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought out to answer all of these criticisms that come across my desk, my secretary would be engaged in little else in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you men are of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope 
will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every Southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all across the South, one of which, one of which being the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Whenever necessary and possible, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program, if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I am here, along with several members of my staff, because we were invited here. I am here because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets left their, left their little villages and carried there, thus saith, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus to practically every hamlet in the city of the Greco-Roman world. I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must consistently respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in the single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provisional, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives in the United States can never be considered an outsider. You deplore the demonstrations that I presently take place in Birmingham, but I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concerns for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I am sure that each of you I'm sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrators are taking place in, in Birmingham at this time, but I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of the city left the Negro community with no other alternative. So that was um, the first the first six paragraphs of this. Um, anything come to mind? Um, the biggest one I, I highlighted, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yeah, and that um, speaks volumes. <laughs> Like, yeah, moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. And then whoever lives in America or whoever lives in the United States can never be considered an outsider. Um, and then the, yeah, that idea of the outside agitator. How many times have you heard of that? Like, um, 
mayors feeling like they got to go on to their news reports and say, like, everybody we arrested was from the outside. Well, if it wasn't That's for... That's the first thing they said in Minneapolis, that the 20 people they arrested that night, none of them were from Minneapolis. So... So people can't like, show up for so, each other? Yeah, I was like, so what? Like, you know, it's like, I think about the Pride Parade in New York City. World Pride Parade last year brought in, like, millions of people. Uh, those, All those people were not from New York. There's no, like not all these gay people were bred in New no York way. City, you know? Like, no way, you know? Yeah, slave rebellions in the South could not have happened without people escaping to the North, organizing and coming back to the South. Exactly. Like, this outside agitator idea, like, um, I think of when... Uh, the ICE protests happened in 20, uh, 2017 and mm-hmm. people were showing up to the Portland ICE facility and um, setting up encampments there and like occupying the space where these like this new military force in the United States was like actively ripping people apart from their families and shipping them off again um, and just getting yelled at by like um, white women at my job who like all of a sudden like they're they're ordering a coffee and then all of a sudden they get they're getting angry because um, you know just they saw that people were disturbing the peace at an ice facility and like I don't know I can't believe they just like would fix their mouth to just um, you know just I be so visibly angry like yeah like is it like a closed-mindedness, you think? Or is it just like It's an this idea that like civility like... is more important than anything because like, you know, you can't like, why are people throwing a bricks bricks at like Target or a Chase Center? Like that is so uncivil. Like you need to go be like the inline, always correct, follow the rules type of thing. Um, but like, as we've seen, like, you know, Ferguson was in 2014. Ferguson was less than 10 years ago. We've been through all these riots. We've mm-hmm. seen we've seen the outrage before and now this is a new reiteration of it and if we go through all of this again for no real substantive change to happen then the next round of riots are gonna be like it's, even, just, it's even gonna bigger. be worse like it's like yeah Whew, okay um do you want to take over yeah I'll take in it. any nonviolent campaign mm-hmm. so in any nonviolent campaign there are four basic steps collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of this country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city in this nation. These are the hard, brutal, and unbelievable facts. On the basis of them, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the political leaders consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then came the opportunity last September to talk with some of the leaders of the economic community. In these negotiating sessions, certain promises were made by the merchants, such as the promise to remove the humiliating racial signs from the stores. On the basis of these promises, Reverend Suttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to call a moratorium on any type of demonstration. As the weeks and months unfolded, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. The signs remained. 
As in so many experiences of the past, we are confronted with blasted hopes and the dark shadow of a deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except that of preparing for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as the means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. We were not unmindful of the difficulties involved, so we decided to go through a process of self-purification. We started having workshops on on nonviolence and repeatedly asked ourselves the questions, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? And are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? We decided to set our direct action program around the Easter season, realizing that, with the exception of Christmas, this was the largest shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure on the merchants for the needed changes. Then it occurred to us that the March election was ahead, and so we speedily decided to postpone action until after election day. When we discovered that Mr. Connor was in the runoff, we decided again to postpone action so that the demonstration could not be used to cloud the issues. At this time, we agreed to begin our nonviolent witness the day after the runoff. This reveals that we did not move irresponsibly into direct direct action. We too wanted to see Mr. Connor defeated. So we went through postponement after postponement to aid the community need. After this, we felt that direct action would be delayed no longer. You may ask, you, excuse me, you may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're exactly right in your call for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I'm not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. We therefore concur with you in the call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in the tragic attempt to live in a monologue rather than a dialogue. Wow. Like, I read this multiple times today um, just to really let it sink in, but I think saying it out loud is just, has a different effect. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's, like, it, it's so, tr- it's, I, I just, 
it's just mind-boggling that all the things that he speaks of from 50 years ago like i'm sorry almost 60 years ago now are just as relevant it's like what like history is literally repeating itself right now so we went through postponement after postponement to aid this community in need and then later on to say like i just referred to the creation of tension as part of the work of nonviolent resistor. So um, when you attack, when you are throwing bricks at a target, like um, that is like nonviolent work. Um, that is like the creation of this tension. Um, you know, like we we watched cops get let off over and over again after they killed black bodies. And then once cops do get charged, we see the convictions get dropped. And then once we do see a conviction go through, we see the charges end up being some, you know, like some joke, some slap on the wrist. Um, And it like, it never just ends at police brutality because that is like part of this bigger global thing called white supremacy. And Mm -hmm. like, I think of um, how hard some people have to go through um, or how hard families and people have to work to just get through college, just to get like a basic AA degree or a bachelor's of arts and science or anything like that. But then it comes out earlier this year or uh, maybe late last year, I don't remember, the whole um, the Varsity Blues scandal where Felicity Huffman and her man were able to pay for their mediocre ass kids to go to school. And when this shit comes out, they get a slap on the wrist of like two weeks in jail. Um, and it's probably some like very nice, very nice little vacation for them to like be separated from their family and to go do this little slap on the wrist. But when a black mother in Georgia does it, enroll her kid in a school in a better neighborhood or in, enroll her kid in a school district in a better area, um, she gets thrown in jail. It's, um, I forgot um, the exact quote, but it, they were making, um, because it was kind of a joke, you know how like the Hannah Montana thing where Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana, you'll never see them in the same room. Because of the it's same like, thing. Exactly. So it's like they were saying that um, like the people at the KKK rallies and the police force, you'll never see them at the same you know, okay, that reminds them. me. Um, you know, earlier in like, this, what did he say? Um, Birmingham, Alabama has been victim to the most unsolved bombings. Have you ever heard of the MOVE bombing? So this is like the the U.S. government, the federal government working with a local police force to bomb a street of black activists and it like happened within your parents lifetime i'm sure like i wonder mm-hmm. if they've heard about it I, but like it's not in our history books and it's not anything we've ever talked there, about that's um, like um the stuff in but i have to pull it up um someone so the move um the move organization is a black liberation group founded in 1972 in uh, philadelphia and basically in 1985 um, the cops just came in and bombed the shit out of them um killed their main they were like the most forward-facing organization in in the area for like black education black um access to food access to health care all done by just a group of people that saw a need in their community and got together to like address those needs um Mm -hmm. and they were just they were bombed for the, the 
empowerment that they were giving to their community. And it wasn't until this year that there was even some sense of like a formal apology through like the state. Um, let's see, the apology came in May, this last month. Like, and that happened 35 years ago where you would like, yeah. It would, like, I don't even know what the equivalent of that would be. It would be as if, like, our government, like, bombed the, um, the Social Security office uh, or the, mm-hmm. the people that process, like, um, food stamps, the food stamps applications and low-income, like, Section 8 housing, um, and then not apologizing for it for another 35 years. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that was, like, that, that reminds me of... Um one of my friends on Facebook, um, she posted about, um, it was like a, a share of a tweet and it was, guess who else looted white people when they killed hundreds of black people on quote, black wall street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 35 square blocks of black owned businesses and homes attacked on the ground from bombed and bombed from the air, the wealthiest black community in the U S at the time. Yeah, there's um, there's a video I want to pull up at the end of here that what, like speaks to like to that. Um, and it's like that's to, a, like, it's it's so crazy because th- these are the things that you don't read in your your textbooks in school that you don't learn about that and built the foundation of this country and exactly, was like part of like exactly. our American ideals and our American identity and we all benefit from it. Um, yes, but then you know, like. It's, it's not about the TV when you're looting. It's about um, taking, taking back. Like we, we live in a country that's refused to raise the federal minimum wage um, forever. So fuck it if somebody wants to like go in there and steal a TV. Like that's, if you are just looking at the TV and the destruction of property, you're missing the point. Okay, let's carry on with this. One of the basic points in your statement is that our acts are untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new administration time to act? The only answer that I can give in, to this inquiry is that the new administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it acts. We will be sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Mr. Boutwell will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is much more articulate and gentle than Mr. Connor, they're both segregationists, dedicated to the task of maintaining the status quo. I hope to see in Mr. Boutwell that, I hope, The hope I see in Mr. Boutwell is that he will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation. But he will not see this without pressure from the devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the... History is the long and tragic story of the fact that Privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Neighbor has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. This kind of speaks to what you were saying a second ago about the looting of um, black bodies in Wall Street, <clears throat> black Wall Street, like, um, and this also speaks to like how it's not enough just to be like, just to personally be not racist uh, or mm-hmm. be passively like a, for, you know, civil rights for everybody um, because we live in 
the more just staying immoral silent group. in general, just, just being quiet in general is that, that I think that's such a big problem too, you know? Yeah. Um, letting it pass away the, the silent majority, like, okay. um, I'm going to jump into the next paragraph. Mm-hmm. We, hold on. I'm going to, I wanted to like see your face and read this at the same time, but now it's like too small for me to like really see the word. So I'm Goodbye. full screening this other thing. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor and must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been tranquil a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. Okay, so a quick aside, thalidomide is, um, was a medicine used and ended up having these like really adverse side effects that led to death. Um, and that's important to know because... Um, you know, it was something that was meant for, for good to treat a disease, but had these undue consequences. And he's referring to it um, here, talking about, you know, the waiting. The waiting is a tranquilizing thalidomine, relieving the emotional stress for a moment only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. So just a little bit of context. Carrying on, he says, we must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence, and we still creep at a horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mother and father at will and drown your sisters and and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twist your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television. When you see tears welling up in her eyes, when she is told that the fun town is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of infer- infer- inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and when she begins to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos daddy why do white people treat colored people so mean when you cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored when your first name becomes n-word expletive and when your middle name becomes boy however old you are and your last name becomes john when you 
And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mr.s or Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despairs. I hope, sir, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. This is like fighting back tears, like reading it again. So when people, there's this like, the, the jokes about like, you know, social justice and trigger warnings and microaggressions and the snowflake left and all these things that like people like to like um, prescribe as like these new, this new age of like political correctness. And um, it's not, you know, we have new language to describe these things, but like, you, um, you know, microaggressions, um, gaslighting all these all these terms that we've been like conditioned to hear over and over again like just so plainly and like the origins of it are right here in front of us like daddy why do white people treat colored people so mean having to sleep in your car when oh the the whole thing about like calling black people boy and john you know like uh that like that's huge like, why, why is it that so many Black people are, like, why is it that so many last names are John, White, Brown, um, you know, those names were given to Black bodies after the horrible act of dominating Black women and forcing Black women to carry your offsprings and take, take your name. You know, it, like, it, we, uh, people love to, like, describe these things as you know just that new social justice thing but um it like that erases the terrible and like painful history that is like encompassed in respecting people's identities respecting people's names hearing people out um yeah and it's really gross to just see people parrot those things um and those talking points yeah this that paragraph like it's just heartbreaking you know um to think that these human beings they're they're fucking human beings like are treated like this it it's Within something our that, parents generation like it's yes, sometimes it's my, like my, my parents so far away yeah like my parents were alive during this like my, my parents were born in the 50s my grandparents were born right around the same time as Martin Luther King, you know? So like, this is our lifetime. Like this might not be our personal lifetime, but it's in within generations that are still alive. And he talks about like the international aspect of it too, because like in the sixties, when we talk about like the cold war and people like to say that the cold war, there was like no shots fired between the two major aggressors, which were the United States and what was the Soviet the soviet republic um but meanwhile like all 
the countries that we as a country had our hands in and were stealing from, taking the resources from, they were overthrowing those ties as mm -hmm. the Cold War was going on. So people were finding their independence and finding their, um, their voices and having their autonomy, fighting for their autonomy again. And we still had colored, uh, colored everything. You know, we had segregated societies here. Um, we had the move bombings, you know, like, um, yeah, and we are so caught up in our own world here in America that like, you know, literally the, the global majority is overthrowing, <laughs> overthrowing the oppressive, like, relationships that they have with like, superpowers. Um, and we here are, you know, horse and buggy pace. Do you want to take over on the third page? Mm-hmm. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may ask, well, excuse me, one may ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put into the terms of St. Saint Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in internal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. To use the words of Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, segregation substitutes if an I, an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So segregation is not only politically, economically, and soci sociologically unsound, but it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Isn't segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, an expression of his awful estrange estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? So I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it is, because it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. Let us turn to a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a majority inflicts on a minority that is not binding on itself. This is difference, this is difference made legal. On the other hand, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another example. 
An unjust law is a code inflicted upon a minority which that minority has no part in enacting or creating because it did not have the unhampered right to vote. Who can say that a legislator of Alabama which set up the segregation laws was democratically elected? Throughout the state of Alabama, all types of conniving methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties with a single Negro registered to vote, despite the fact that the Negroes constitute a majority of the population. Can any law set up in such a state be considered democratically structured? These are just a few examples of unjust and just laws. There are some instances when a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I was arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there is nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but when the ordinance is used to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, that it becomes unjust. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Sadrick, Mesach, and Abinego. Yes, Sadrach, Mesach, and uh, Abednego. It's a Abendigo. it's a biblical story. Okay. Um, and then that obey- next word is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so can you say those names one more time? Yeah, it was seen sublimely in the refusal of Sadrach, Mesach, and Abednego to obey the the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because of a higher moral law was involved. Thank you. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was quote-unquote legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was quote, illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany, but I am sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. I think we can... Yeah. Um, Let's lump in like these next three paragraphs as well with this. Okay, so I'll keep going. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, 
and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of good will is more frustrating than absolutely misun than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In your statement, you asserted that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But can this assertion be logically made? Isn't this like condemning the robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical delvings uh, precipitated the misguided popular mind to make him drink the hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to his will precipitated? excuse me, <clears throat> devotion to his will, precipitated the evil act of crucifixion, we must come to see, as federal courts have consistently affirmed, that it, it is immoral to urge an individual to withdraw his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest precipitates violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth of time. I received a letter this morning from a white brother in Texas, which said, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but it is possible that you are in too great of a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. All that is said here grows out of a tragic misconception of time. It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic word, yeah, vitriolic words. Vitriolic. Let me restart that. Um, we will, excuse me. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. If I was going to make anybody just read a portion of this letter, it would be those last three paragraphs. And, even, and then I would slap you thinking that you, that you thought I was just going to let you off on those three and not like have you read like all of them. Like it. Like, like one that really screams is that. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Like that, the silent majority. <laughs> it's like it's the silent minority. Like, it, um, yeah, it like white people have largely been silent because they benefit from white from the, these 
the white privilege and like it's it's not just like oh you're not gonna get like patted down by the cops it's um white privilege built built all these institutions um so just participating in any way um you're benefiting from it and it doesn't like it's really hard to talk to white people about certain issues on like race or class because it's like so easy to like feel it personally and avoid the bigger thing which is like not just white privilege but anti-blackness um and it's so like often becomes like this thing of like well i'm not one of the bad ones or i'm not one of these and then you have to like address their feelings instead of addressing the bigger issue um it's like i i read this quote about privilege and said privilege is when you think something is not a problem because you aren't personally affected and it's that i i think that's the major issue is that um the like i don't see color or all lives matter sort of thing um i it took me a while that like it it's i i am white i identify as white um even though like i am half puerto rican i don't it it that's not who i like you know like that that doesn't beam out of my skin you know, I don't get, um, I've never, um, I guess, experienced racism in any sort of aspect, you know? So like coming from a white person's perspective, it is definitely hard to see where your voice comes in the conversation just because of, no, we, I have not personally experienced racism. I can't, I can't empathize with people. I never will be able to empathize, but it's more of becoming an ally and being able to fight for those people and know that like you, like shit is not okay. It's not okay. What any, like for the past ever, like it's never been okay. Like nothing has ever been okay. It might've seemed that like other things, especially with the way social media is nowadays, it's really easy for things to get just brushed under the rug and it's like you know like it's like fucking hiding a a beach ball under your rug like it's like it's it's covered but you can still see it it's still there it's right there you know so that's why i know uh like for myself personally it's it is hard to come into a conversation about this just because sometimes you don't like some like systematically where like racism is there you know like it's just how it's literally like it's in the weavings of our country that's how it was built and and it has like a whole like tool shed of things that it can use to like repurpose itself and find itself literally everywhere Mm -hmm. um like you know that we just had a like a string of like super racist tiktoks go viral um like it just it will seep into every single thing without being addressed um yeah so yeah someone just wrote i again more like people speaking out on facebook um like someone someone wrote black lives matter and i know this post is late um but it's this sentence is pretty much how i feel it's like i'm on I'm often unsure about my place in discussions of race and privilege as someone who has been born into and as uh, born into a privilege as privileged of a life as mine, but being silent about it isn't, isn't adding to, isn't helping, 
you know? So it's, I feel like, you know, it's like, I, I grew up privileged. I grew like, you know, like hardships were not a part of my, my upbringing. And I'm very thankful for that, but it's, it's not, I can't be blind to that, that other people didn't like, I know other people didn't grow up the way I did. I know they didn't like we grew up differently, you know, like the, our upbringings are different. And I think, um, it's just, I think it's just learning. Like for me, it's still like an, un- like I'm uncomfortable talking about this, you know, but that it starts there. It starts, so like, with, you know, the, um, the comment about like not knowing where my voices fit in is like super important because it's like, there's, um, well, you know, Martin Luther King here talks about like the four different stages of, mm-hmm. or the four different steps of like organizing. And um, when, you know, it's like the critical self-reflection is the first thing because you can show up to these protests and you can show up to these places where organizers are doing the work because there's a lot of good organizers already doing the work. Um, but if there isn't like, if the critical self-reflection doesn't go past, like just, you know, um, I had it kind of good and some people don't, then like you're, you, it's like you're, you're almost there or like you know enough to know you, you know enough to know this little bit, but you don't know enough to like actually get better. Um, so like the, the critical self-reflection is like an, a lifelong thing. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it doesn't end after like just the first like Black Lives Matter post and doesn't end after the first, um, uh, you know, protest that you show up to. It's like a lifelong commitment because mm-hmm. um, there's been generations of commitment to like the white ideals and white supremacy mm-hmm. that like, you know, that we live in now. Um, yeah, and I hate to say that, like, I I just, I started buying books on educating myself on the history that came before, before right now. And it's almost like, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm only learning it now. But, you know, it's, but like you it's also now is better than like never. The- you know, it's, it, and I hate that it had to get to this, it had to escalate to this. And I'm sure a lot of people are like that too, where they're like, you know, maybe um, I should educate myself a little bit more on this because we're all like, we're all Americans. We're all under the sit. Like we all, this is one country, like no matter, no matter what color you are, you know, like these are my American brothers and sisters, no matter whether like we're all immigrants here. Like, no, no, we, we took this land from other people, you know? So yeah, there's like some central sins that have never been addressed, which is like our relationship to our land and our relationship to the work we produce um, or the work that we've benefited from. Um, and uh, yeah, like the segregation is still like very much alive and real and it's alive in the sense of like redlining and housing discrimination and access to resources. Like are, that's very much segregated. So like, you know, um, it like some people have learned about their history because they've like experienced racism in a different sense um or more physically and like you know it's like all of the history that we've learned is defends like the american ideals and the united states government um like the vietnam war like every history we heard of about that was bullshit the civil war how it came through like you know there's so many um, because you know history gets written by the winners so like mm-hmm. if you go through if you go through your 
your privileged life in a school system that was is segregated and doesn't have you know people of color in it. Um, of course, you're just you're it's so baked into you that almost seeing you know seeing the other um, the true histories that embody uh, people of color, black and indigenous people specifically, like it's almost impossible to see. And of course, like some people are only coming up to it now. And like, mm-hmm. I don't like the like whole like better late than never thing. Cause it's like, damn, you know, <laughs> like 2000, not 2000 years, like 400 years late, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but like the, the seeing more like white people come to terms, like, as you know, being in like organizing spaces and seeing white people that are committed to like certain causes of liberation or human rights or anything like is you know it's always kind of like giving them a side eye or like seeing how they engage with it first because there is that whole like you know white savior thing and um and to see like yeah to see people grapple with that is always interesting and um for me it's it's more of I don't want to disrespect people because of my lack of education in it. You know, like, I don't want to say that that's why I'm so careful with how I word things when it comes to this sort of topic, just because of the fact that like, I just, I keep going back to even just like sending you the quote because like, it just shows that like, I don't, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't know my history well enough to feel confident putting those things out there, you know? And like, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm supporting something that I don't actually believe to support, you know? So it's like, it comes with so much education and like, you know, that's why I'm like happy to have a friend like you that will, will educate me. And it's like, and it's not an uncomfortable conversation for us because it's just, I, I truly just, want to know you know like I want to make sure that the words I say and what I put out there is respectful to all people is not oppressing anybody regardless like it can even just be the way some words are put you know like it's the the voices that are centered yeah exactly so that's I think that like that's my main thing is that you like I even go back to like how the reason this podcast came out in the first place is to bring people together, you know? And so it's like, it all, it it all just comes back to that idea of, of bringing people together. And it's, it starts with understanding who the people we're trying to bring together are. Yeah. And, um, and like, I have, um, I've been taught by like amazing people too. And, um, it's important that like, you know, that, that there is that critical self-reflection and that these really, these conversations happen within your like immediate community. And like, I, I've been getting tagged in this thing, um, like the tag 10 people that won't break the mm-hmm. chain thing. And it's like, I, I love the sentiment. It's super cute y'all. Um, but I like, I'm not participating. Yeah. I'm breaking the chain. What the fuck ever. Like we're doing the work and you know, I like it. I don't I think it's a little empty. It is empty, and a lot of political mm-hmm. organizing often seems empty when it's reduced down to like a petition a tag to sign on Instagram. Yeah. yeah, a petition to sign, a tag on Instagram, a vote in November. Like, because that's oftentimes what we see as like the um, the rebuttal to these riots. Like, don't even Obama said it. Like, don't boo, vote. And like when we look at this election, one not that many people vote, (laughs) you know, less than half of this country's population votes. Two, people have historically been marginalized or 
the access to voting is very hard. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and you're like, those voices that you're centering when you say vote is still like such a minority in this country, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you, there's, there's so many other things that happen in like organizing and around these issues um, that like just dwindling it down to like a ballot measure, a petition to sign and voting never really gets anything done. Especially when you think about this coming election and how much of a dumpster fire it's gonna be because you know, like you, the white moderate is all we have to vote for. And it's what we've had to vote for, for basically every election. We have an actual white supremacist and then a passive white supremacist. Um, Joe Biden, like, let's not, let's just get back to Martin Luther King's words um, because we got two more pages of this and a lot to talk about. So yeah. You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I started thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is the force of complacency made up of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, have been so completely drained of self-respect and its sense of somebodyness that they have been adjusted to segregation and on the other hand of a few Negroes in the middle class who because of a degree of academic and economic security and because and because at points they profit by segregation have unconsciously become insensitive to the problems of the masses. So um, yeah, really quickly, like Dr. King is obviously speaking from like the black perspective to clergymen speaking on like things specific to like black people. Um, But, you know, the sense of complacency in Negroes can be like swapped with any, any people, any group of people. Um, The other force is one of bitterness and hatred and comes Paris perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various Black nationalist groups that are signing up all over the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This this movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. It is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and and who have concluded that the white man is in incurable devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces saying that we need not follow the do-nothingism of the complacent or the hatred and despair of the Black nationalists. There is a more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the Negro church, the dimensions of nonviolence entered our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, I am convinced that by now many streets of the South would be flowing with floods of blood. I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss uh, if our white brothers dismiss as rabble rousers and outside agitators, those of us who are working through the channels of nonviolent direct action and refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes out of frustration and despair will seek solace and security in black nationalist ideologies, a development that will lead inevitably to a frightening racial nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The urge for freedom will eventually come. 
This is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom. Something without has reminded him that he can gain it. Consciousness and un consciously and unconsciously, he has been swept in by what the Germans called the zeitgeist. And with you know what the zeitgeist is? Mm -mm. It's um, I've it's heard like a, it like a German philosophy, and it's um, like spirit of the age or like a yeah, that's what like I thought spirit it was. of the times. Um, it like refers to like this invisible agent of or like force dominating like certain characteristics of people in history. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the word used like time and time again. I never it's used a lot in the art field, but um, but yeah, good. Okay, so um, consciously and unconsciously, he has been swept in by what the Germans call the zeitgeist. And with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, and the Caribbean, he is moving with a sense of cosmic urgency toward the promised land of racial justice. Recognizing this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand public demonstrations. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations. He has he has to get them out. So let him march sometimes. Let him have his prayer uh, pilgrimages to the city hall. Understand why he must have sit-ins and freedom rides. If, he is, if his repressed emotions do not come out in these nonviolent ways, they will come out in ominous expressions of violence. This is not a threat. It is a fact in history. These last three sentences are like everything, Any are like, I don't know, I feel like, this is what I could blast on someone's forehead when they're like, but these protests, these aren't good. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is not a threat. It is a fact of history. So I have said to my people, get rid of your discontent. But I have tried to say that this is, that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Now this approach is being dismissed as extremist. I must admit that I was initially disappointed in being categorized and being so categorized. But as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that dis despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist of for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the mark of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I could, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan, an extremist. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was Thomas Jefferson not an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? I had hoped that the white moderates would see this. Maybe I was too optimistic. Maybe I expected too much. I guess I should have realized that few members of race that have few members of a race that has oppressed another race can understand or appreciate the deep groans and passionate yearnings of those who have been oppressed. And still, fewer have the vision to see that that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. I am thankful, however, that some of us, that some of our white brothers have 
grasped the meaning of the social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too small in quantity. They are still all too small in quantity, but they are big in quality. Mm. Some like Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, and James Dabb have written about our struggle in eloquent, prophetic, and understanding terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets in the South. They sat in with us at lunch counters and rode in with us on the freedom rides. They have languished in filthy roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of angry policemen who see them as dirty and word expletive lovers. They, unlike many of their moderate brothers, have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action, antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. Let me rush on to mention my other disappointment. I have been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I am not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stance on the issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand in this past Sunday and welcoming Negroes to your Baptist church worship service on a non-segregated basis. I condemn the Catholic, I commend the Catholic leaders of the state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say that this is I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who nurtured it in its bosom, who had made who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. Um, Do you want to take over? Yes. Um, I lost the, okay. Um, I had the strange. Yeah, I had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we should have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would would be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing. uh, Anesthetizing? Okay, let me... um, All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances could could get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I've been disappointed. I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow the decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. 
And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than the man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such, an, to such ancient evils in infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America. Before the pilgrims landed in Plymouth, we were here. By the pen of Jefferson scratched across the pages of history, the majestic word of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. For more than two centuries, our foreparents labored here without wages. They made cotton king and they built the homes of their masters in the midst of brutal injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of the bottomless vitality of people continue to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelty, cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the oppression we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because of the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. I must close now, but before closing, I am impelled to mention that one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping, quote, order and, quote, preventing violence. I don't blame you. I don't believe you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its angry, violent dogs literally biting six unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I don't believe you would so quickly commend the policemen if you would observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you would watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, 
if you would see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you would observe, as they did on two occasions, refusing to give food because we wanted to sing our grace together, I'm sorry that I can't join you in your praise for the, de the police department. It is true that they have been rather disciplined in their public handling of demonstrators. In this sense, they have been publicly, quote, nonviolent. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation. Over the last few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that, excuse me, um, over the last few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we must use be as pure as the ends we seek. So I've tried to make it clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just wrong or even more to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. I wish you had commended the Negro demonstrators of Birmingham for the sublime courage, their willingness to suffer and their amazing discipline in the midst of the most inhumane provocation. One day the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths, courageously and with a majestic sense of purpose, purpose facing jeering and hostile mobs, and the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman of Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with the people decided to rob the segregated buses and responded to one who inquired about her tiredness with ungrammatically profundity. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. They will be young high school and college students, young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in, a, in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience sake. One day the South will know that when the dis disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values in, the, in our Judeo-Christian heritage. Never before have I written a letter this long, or should I say book. I'm afraid that it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it, that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else is there to do when you are alone for days in the dull monotony of a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think strange thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I had said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. Yeah, um... Yeah, there's nothing we really got to say, you know? <laughs> um, it's like he lays out so plainly. Yep, so straightforward. And I don't think there, there's no reason to beat around the bush with this. There's, there's no reason um, to get tied up in uh, like theoretical jargon. Um, it's not. It does get a little preachy. 
but it does, you know, that's but I think is. that's who, like, yeah, that's who he is as a person, which, um, that's okay. I think it's, um, timely when it comes to like how he, how he's speaking, you know? And like, well, he, he does talk a lot about like specifically like the church towards that, the end of that, but like mm-hmm. the complacency of that institution is seen everywhere. From, it was like, also such a major powerhouse at like, that time. Even, even now with like, you know, like my family came here with nothing and their community was like their neighborhood and their church and their church is where they made all their friends and like to see um the church like constantly um disrespect the people (laughs) the immigrants the mothers the people in their in within their home and claim to be like radical for christ like this Mm -hmm. um yeah i think this letter when i first read it was um put into words all the things that I felt originally about the church and originally about like how the church did like wipe away so many like things that are like culturally important for my family because it was then deemed as unworthy for Christ. Um, and yeah, I've, I think it was, um, it's, it's really important read. Um, it's definitely something we can link in the bio just so um because yeah we read it but honestly when you read it out loud it's a it's a very different feel to it even my first i like i had a four-hour drive today so it's like i sat there and read it a couple times and it definitely doesn't sit the same when you read it without saying it out loud um it it holds a different weight um, and it already holds a lot of weight, this letter. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really important to, to put into your, um, reading list, Psyche, like right, yeah. at, right at the top. And like it, like, like it's a political text because like from here, like at least then we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. At least we understand like. There's a foundation you, that yeah. everyone has the same line now. All right. This is the bottom line. Like you you just read it and you can't like you can't ever say like um you know the ignorance of like you know ignorance isn't an excuse after you read this letter like um and and it brings around a sense of understanding without being like oh he's just defending what he was doing with his uh with the southern leader um what was it um I was about to say the Southern Leadership Conference, but I think that's another thing. Uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. There we go. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, he, he was just, like, defending those things to the white pastors. So it's, like, important that he mm-hmm. talked about the church. Um, but, yeah, I think I just want to share my screen real quick so we can watch this video. Um, Tamika Maori. Tamika Mallory, um, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Um, Have you seen the speech? I have not. Literally a couple days ago. Um, The reason why buildings are burning is because this city, this state, would prefer preserving that white nationalism and that white supremacist mindset over arresting, charging, and helping to convict. Uh 
four officers who killed the black man. That is the reality of what we're dealing with. This is not just a few cops doing things across the country. This is not a good cop versus bad cop situation. This is Ahmaud Arbery being shot down by white men on the streets of Georgia. Breonna Taylor being killed in her home. This is in New York City where we were until freedom. We were just in New York fighting the police officers who in the name of social distancing were damn near killing black young people on our streets. This is a coordinated activity happening across this nation. And so we are in a state of emergency. Black people are dying in a state of emergency. We cannot look at this as an isolated incident. The reason why buildings are burning are not just for our brother, George Floyd. We're, they're burning down because people here in Minnesota are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. And we are not responsible for the mental illness that has been inflicted upon our people by the American government institutions and those people who are in positions of power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. And so young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops, charge the cops, charge all the cops, not just some of them, not just here in Minneapolis, charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. Do what you say this country is supposed to be about, the land of the free for all. It has not been free for black people, and we are tired. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. We learned violence from you. The violence was what we learned from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better. Powerful. Powerful like, as fuck. If you're talking about good cops, bad cops, you're missing the point. If you're talking about destruction of property, you're missing the point. Um, yeah, it's about it, it's it's about like the the threads that built this nation. Like it's it's way way bigger than that. Yeah, um, it's like when well, it's not it's not it's like when it's just I just want to encourage everybody to like 
have these conversations with people um, in your life. Like I, I understand like why talking about it on social media is important, but like social media is like the least effective way of communicating and organizing anything ever. Um, these conversations should be happening with your like passive aggressive racist uncle, um, with your family who parrots these same talking points and ideals. Um, and then like, I understand we're in a pandemic, um, but these, these, um, these protests that you're seeing, it is so important that like you use your body in any way that you can and you use your finances in any way that you can. Um, so like showing up to these protests, they don't just happen, they're not just happening at midnight when the fires are starting and the rocks are being thrown and the cops are kicking people's ass. They start at like 4 p.m. and there's vigils and there's meditations and there's just silent marches and there's people just chanting Black Lives Matter. And you can do that while being socially distant. And it's, um, just show up, do the critical self-reflection, show up and keep showing up and have these conversations and like just, it, you know, there's, um, don't lose hope. There's like in that letter, like he said, like, I, I do not have despair for the future, I think was his term. Um, yeah. And like, sometimes it is really difficult. Like when you are like, when you do see the threads and you see how it gets replicated everywhere and then you are like committing to the work, it's so easy to be like, well, you know, damn, it hasn't ever changed. Or like, you know, when you start imagining possible futures that are equitable and do like give people their, their human rights and their dignity and their self-respect, like it seems like that could be so far away that like you will feel despair, but like hold on to that for as long as you need it. And then like, mm -hmm. remember that there's, um, you know, resistance and uh, yeah, resistance is like baked into our blood, <laughs> especially as like people of color, like it, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the rebellions that happened before, if it wasn't for people crossing borders um, and building, uh, building these new lives off of their back and their bodies and the work that they produce. So yeah, don't, don't lose hope, don't lose despair and show up. Yeah, it's, it's a big battle. You know, it's not um, some little pebble that you're trying to push up a hill a fucking boulder you know and um i think I, I think the more even like the theme for me of this whole whole talk is just um I'm, I'm learning like i'm i'm learning about it and i'm um educating myself on the matters at hand and um it's knowing that your your part may not seem really big but just know that you're a part of the collective push of that boulder up the hill. And I think that um, just reminding yourself that although your efforts might not seem like they're making great strides, it's, it's power of numbers that if um, we come together and do it and as a collective force, push the boulder up the hill, it's, it, who knows, it might move faster. We can only hope that it's gonna move faster. Yeah. Um, and we, we like said this with Michi too, like we shouldn't be afraid of having these conversations because mm -hmm. um, they, they are everywhere. So they do like replicate and um, we embody them and they come out in, you know, DCI, WGI, um, everywhere, you know, everywhere. So, and like committing to being like anti-racist or um, anti-fascist um, doesn't mean that you're never gonna like 
mess up or never gonna like parrot those little talking points or you know we've grown up in it so like of course we like replicate it um in other ways but it's that understanding that you're gonna keep learning and you're gonna keep um addressing it within yourself and addressing it within your communities um and then trying again tomorrow because that's all we can do so yeah um yeah show up show up with your pocketbooks um don't follow sean king (laughs) Um, sean king has been shown time and time again to be like a grifter and a scammer there's plenty of other um amazing people to look for um you know, obviously, like, we talked a lot about, like, how this is, like, the starting point, um, or this is just one of many starting points, and it's one that I feel like is relevant for this, um, mm-hmm. but, like, yeah, there's, he, I keep going back to, like, the internationalism of it, like, um, you know, the, you, you just gotta ask yourself, like, why do cops have these riot gears? Why do they literally look like things out of, like, video games a video game literally and then it's like asking like why are we bombing seven countries why do we have military bases all over the world and then like these fun little games that we have bombing the middle east and overthrowing governments in latin america like we have to create tools to do that Um, we create like the predator drones our economy is inextricably linked to war, um, war and oil. We steal their resources. And not only that, like we make all these like fancy new military weapons and surveillance technologies that we export to our military bases to like have these fun little games for them um, around the world. And then we bring that shit back home. Um, And it happens and it's like, embodied by the police departments here like the surveillance state in this country and the police state in this country is linked to the militarism um or throughout the world like it's we we spend more on our military than the next 10 countries combined and like it's as simple as or it's as personal as like the meat you eat like you eat a hot dog on Memorial Day weekend, and that is linked to the cancer rates of people that, uh, specifically Black people, that live in the towns where meat is produced. So it, like, we talk about this letter, and it's important to start, but then realize that, like, the Pandora's box of, like, this world is just, it's everywhere, and... We, we just peeked into the box, like, that, I don't, we didn't even open, we, we barely, we probably just unflipped the latch. Yeah. Like... Um, I think the New York, New York Police Department is the fourth largest standing army in the world. Um, let me make that's sure that's correct. That's, yeah, I I know they're top. I think they're, I believe they're top five at least. Yeah. So yeah, it's the seventh. Bloomberg claims NYPD seventh biggest army in the world. Yeah, it just like you know when you say you support the police, um, the police department doesn't have to go through budget cuts like um, everything else does. So when you support the police, are you also saying that you like support them having or taking away public resources? Like they get a third of every city's budget. Um, So do you, are you also supporting like how we cut things to more fund them? Are you also supporting the fact that like 40% of police get um, are reported to like 
be domestic abusers when in the popul when the general population it's around like ten percent I think. Um, you know, do you support them having the surveillance technology that they do? Like, they're, um, do you also support, like, ICE? Because that's, we, we didn't even get into ICE and how that's a brand new thing, less than 20 years old. Um, yeah, like, it just, it goes so deep. Um, and there's still so much to learn. And there's still, like, yeah, it goes into, like, the CIA and, like, intelligence agencies and, um, like, how... <clears throat> in Israel right now, the two prime ministers that um, the Israeli people are choosing between both still believe in the extermination of the Palestinian people um, and how like Israel is our largest military partner in the Middle East and they get like, they got like a $2 trillion, I'm, I hope that number is correct, but they got a, a huge like, um, cash injection from our taxes um, through our military alliance there. So, yeah, um, it's been kind of, like, hard also, like, logging into social media these past few days because, like, I don't want to keep seeing people be shot. I don't want to keep seeing these faces happen over and over again. And, like, like I understand, like, having to see it once and have, like, but you don't need to – yeah, I don't know. Like, I logged into Instagram twice this week after being unplugged for two days because of, like, an emotional crisis with my friend. And then, like, also this being a very emotional week because it's the yesterday was the day that, like, my little sister passed away. So I like to just, like, stay away because I don't like seeing those photos show up on my feed um, all the time. And then to, like, log on and, like, have all those things. And then, like, there was this, like, video compilation of, like, cops like shooting at the black man running away for his life or shooting at just like a person standing at line waiting for a store to open like mm -hmm. I don't need to keep seeing that but you know it like yeah it's hard mm -hmm. um, it's just like I don't know like this uh, like I don't know I it's like I, I feel like embarrassed admitting that like that it comes to like this this past week has opened my eyes more than I mean I probably opened a lot of people's eyes this week um what's been going on around the country and um it's it needs to it needs to change our, like our views and it needs to change like things need to change like like we said earlier that if if these riots and these, and whether violent, nonviolent, however people decide to protest these issues um, for like they are, how, how am I trying to word this? Like this past week has been a mix mosh of like violent and nonviolent acts of protest. And it's been the worst we've seen since like, it's very the, yeah. So, yeah, like literally like, um, and it's like when, like, when is enough going to be enough? Like, you know, like it's, I don't know. It, it I'm at a loss for words yeah. when it comes to, to what's happening in the world. It's just scary too. Like it's scary to see um, what the country we live in truly is, you know, like never yeah, thought you would that's... live in a world that was so 
I don't even because there is that misconception of time that like as it goes on like things things have obviously gotten better since the 60s or obviously gotten better since but like you know it's you know he he calls that that we just read that letter and his words are literally relevant of what's happening this week should speak volumes to everybody the fact that 60 years have gone by 60 freaking years and that is still relevant it's like imagine using the first television for example like people wouldn't even know how to turn like or a cassette player not even not even 60 years old like it it would seem prehistoric the the fact that technology moved so fast and um what like um and nobody asked for this you know like we get like we we're getting all the newest crazy technologies for and like we didn't ask for it <laughs> you know it, they just keep coming and they kept get, keep getting pushed into like and it goes into that military thing too like why did we get the internet like where does where does that come from the military um why do we get um new even our, cell, even our cell phones like, like yeah any, and then like that goes transportation yeah so um there's a lot of like there's a lot of good readings um that can come from this too um and i think like i saw saw this post today about like dci wgi like we haven't forgotten about um the mistreatment of black people in this community that conversation the eight percent that that's why that's why they haven't said anything because they have less than 10 percent of their membership are people of color or black you know i mean like i specifically black less than eight percent yeah and like we can talk about like i can talk specifically about the experience at like the cadets and bd and um it was more way more apparent at the cadets though um just like the like remember when we were talking about how like some of these um analogies that were being like described for like cleaning flag work i was like what i've of like I don't understand what you're saying to me because I've never heard this country ass shit before. And like, you know, um, and sometimes you're just being talked to by staff and in something that feels so foreign because it's just like, I I literally think of 2013 in that back corner when it was Passaic and Pedro, like, and they, and then not only knew what they knew why they were grouping you guys. Like they didn't say that they, they didn't say like people of color in the back. They, they didn't say that, you know, like, because that would have been wrong. But and they then, said a Passaic, knowing the demographic of Passaic, knowing what that, like, you know, it's like, that's not okay. It's literally not okay. And then do you remember, like, how things would be addressed with us specifically and how, like, the... De- the demand that we were being asked for was different from the demand of other people. And like, we love those other people Even the vernacular they used was like, oh, how come you don't talk to so-and-so like that over there? How come these people can get away with their tears every single day and I have to hold, we have to hold our own and we don't get any grace. Like, remember when, um, and it was shitty. Um, It was like really shitty how like sometimes they would go down on some of us. Um, But like, yeah we just had to put up with like so many just like verbal you had to put a front you had yeah. to but because then like that's what one person cries quote unquote expected 
And then one other person cries in flag block and they get like a whole pep talk in their ear in front of all of us. And it's like, well, you know, we were never afforded that grace when I'm still deliver. You, yep, and, they get that, they get that shoulder to cry on from the staff and no reprimanding. Yeah. And it like, it wasn't inherently racist. It wasn't inherently, you know, they like didn't, they didn't evil. do it on purpose. You know, it's like, they didn't do it on purpose, but some but of these things are it's, unconscious. It's under, yeah. It's just, yeah. It's a, in your upbringing, how, how you're taught to treat other people. And I think depending on where you grew up in the part of the country, it's all dependent on how you're going to treat people of how they, because of how they look. Yeah. The first couple of years of high school were like a fever dream. Like it was so wild. Cause like middle school was so different from high school because just the distance. Um, I went to high school in Wellington, Florida. And as soon as you got over the, uh, the bridge, it was something different. Like it was, is a that, whole different is that, um, that's Palm beach. Yeah. Well, it's like, right. Yeah. It's technically in like Palm beach County, mm-hmm. I think, but like, you know, in middle school, we would, my mom couldn't pick us up from school. So we would go after school to my cousin's trailer park. Um, and then from there, just wait it out every day and like chill with the cousin and whatever. And like right on the other side of that bridge was a whole pristine different community. Um, it's the, one of the richest counties in the entire country. Wellington. Yeah. They're like, Pal- it's like Palm the highest. County, that whole like, um, or uh, Palm Beach County. Is I, I don't just even get me started the, about Palm Beach. Island. I just watched the Epstein video on there's don't. a whole I'm not gonna get into that right now. We can see but I watched I was watching that documentary and they said what like kids West, from Palm, West Beach. Palm Beach. Like and that's why like when we talk about like Hillary Clinton and like supporters of Hillary Clinton and how like people how of color knew Hillary Clinton was trash, um it's because of things like that. It's because we see how these people act in our community um, and the the company that they have. And you're not just going to pull a fast one over all of us, you know, and the cheese mess spreads fast, okay? Especially with like Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump and Bill Clinton and what uh-huh. Hillary, the Hillary Clinton Foundation did in Haiti, what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does with um, people in Africa. Like as much as crazy as that sounds, let's like all link back to like, white saviorism, the distribution of wealth. Um, yeah. Um, shit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I was just like, I it was so fresh. I, I just was watching no, the documentary real. a couple of days ago and I was like, this is absolutely insane with this pyramid scheme of child trafficking that he's in the highest made. levels of government. And like, in his private island with his private plane that built. Yeah, Clinton people are like, on. where did all where did he get all this money from? Like, how did he become a billionaire? Literally, why? Why did he get all this money for being again mediocre and pathetic and not really amounting to anything? And it's exactly. like, when oh, oh God, well, how, how is it that like the mediocrity connected like our experience with the cadets to Jeffrey Epstein? Just that, like, um, <clears throat> yeah, there's. It's, it's, it just shows you that it's everywhere. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm going to the demonstrations again tonight. Um, yesterday was a pretty civil one out here in Beaverton. It was hosted by, like, the Black Teachers Union. Um, and then we, like, sang a song at the end together. And I was going to go out to the Portland one, but, damn, your boy was tired. Tired. But there's going to... Um, these demonstrations are going to be nonstop, you know, especially mm-hmm. considering the fact that like 
we're in a pandemic, people are unemployed. Like, if we don't like now have, they have nothing better to do with their time, but it's like they have all this time on their hands. That's why aren't they going to speak up for what they believe in at this time? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think to like, I think to a lot of things. <laughs> And you know what? We could be talking about anything so mundane and very, all of a sudden, I'm like yelling into the wind. <laughs> no, just kidding. But like, think about it. Have we, did you ever have a black color guard instructor or a Spanish or, um, you know, Latino, a Filipino? It, we had one well, black instructor at the cadets who was there for a week. I think about it. Um, Mineola, where I grew up, um, there, there you can tell the segregation just in the town so itself Mineola you will not find a black family you'll find Indian you'll find Spanish but you will not find a black family um there's a town called Garden City Park um there I haven't I should probably look into the history of Mineola but I've been told that um one of the mayors in the 60s had sent uh sectioned off a, a portion of Mineola or a portion of Gar so the town is uh, Mineola and then Garden City they're right next to each other there's a place called Garden City Park it is a made-up town pretty much because it's um I don't know like a four by six block space where any black fam that's where you will find every single black family and in the 1960s, they sectioned off the section of like the middle point of town. And like I said, you will not find a black family in Mineola. Um, some like my mom's a real estate agent and she gets heartbroken some days when um, she wants still like the racism is so prevalent still. My mom wants to bring a black family or a black couple to go see a house. And the homeowner says no, or the homeowner like set like has to screen it first, or has to give them a background check before they're white people don't get that. You can get a white couple walking in that's straight out like incarcerated last week, and they can walk in and be fine. But no, because they're a black family or a black couple, no. And it might if my mom will come home crying some days because she she can't do anything about it. You know, it's like she, she wants to be the person to help, but you know, the fact that she's, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. Like there's, um, yeah. Like that when people like newly become like aware of these things or find like a different like sense of urgency with it, it's like, I got to fix the problem. And it's like, wait, <laughs> you know, we, there is a, I mean, the fixing mm -hmm. comes from like different layers of institutions with like different layers of pressure like Martin Luther King said with the um, conflict and uh, raising the the intensity um, but yeah I can't like that's okay so there's like activism and organizing and mm -hmm. like <clears throat> honestly the word activist like makes me fucking cringe um, <clears throat> it's like activist is an individual and people that like slap the label activist on um anything I don't think they really get it because like you know the stakes are so low in this country like you know well I, I say that knowing you know the protests and the rebellions that are happening against police brutality but like sleepy ass Portland Oregon you know um it, it's different than when you're in a community where like your life is 
inherently more at, in danger. And like, I, I like shudder my eye at people who like say they're, you know, they're activists or something. Cause like activists are getting killed. You know, land defenders in Brazil are getting murdered for de- defending what is theirs. You know, here, like, we're asking you to sign a petition and, you know, yeah, defund the police. It. Like, it, it doesn't make you an activist. And it, like, no, it doesn't put you on the front line. And it's so, like, individual, so individual. And, like, to, to think that, like, an individual is going to solve these problems is really, like, daunting, you know? And, like, that's when, like, organizing is important like you find a community a group of people who are committed to like committed to a cause and you like organize with them to like have these discussions and mobilize around certain events and like mm-hmm. i guess the activist portion is like showing up for set on you know said thing yes. um but like that that will not only just get signing you so something and yeah like you know it's it's about sense. like getting things unionized and getting coalitions built um and organizing with the community um yeah like who do you who do you call your own and who do you feel like you own you have a sense of responsibility towards that's Mm -hmm. i guess more central to organizing than like the activist label um yeah we could talk about this all day yeah i think this was um a good start that and uh, good for more normal programming. Um, I think, you know, it's some some days my life seems like all it is is color guard and that nothing else. Um, I, I get tunnel vision and I get the blinders on um, when it comes to the outside world because it just it just is what it is. You know, like more work to be done. You know, um, but at these times when we do have all this time on our hands. Um, things just are, they are just way more apparent than they ever have been. Um, And like you mentioned before, like, because we're in quarantine or because, well, not really so much anymore, but because things are beginning to open and people are um, still unemployed though, um, they use, I'm, I'm glad to see people are using their time to speak out and get out there and um, use their body as um, a means of, um showing showing up you know yeah so we'll link to the letter from a birmingham jail we'll link to the speech by tamika mallory um and then oh i also wanted to talk we this could be for another time and i think it would be good to like one day um talk about jeremy williams (laughs) not him but like the way he talked to us and like undermined us and said that shit about like being minorities because that connects to like the bigger thing like you know what this we all the pressure being put on all of these organizations to come out with like official statements or whatever still like are missing the bar entirely um and still like you know out of all of the board direct all of all of the people uh out of all of the people on the board of directors for drum corps for DCI, um, I think only one of them is a person of color and I think he's black. Um, and so like, I don't, I already don't expect them to like be on the ball with this, but the delay and the constant pressure in it's just like, 
it, it just reminds you that like maybe these institutions were never really here for us either way. And it's yeah, just, it's like you shouldn't have to force someone or uh, belittle someone for not speaking out because especially they, in the, they in, never believed it in the first place. So it's like we're saying like DCI, WGI, like all these organizations, where are you at? But it's like, why do we, why, why now? Like, where were they ever, you know? Yeah. Cause um, yeah, these things have consistently it's like, why, been. Like, why are we surprised that they're not saying anything? Like, I mean, I, like, I'm definitely not. The, the numbers speak for itself when it comes to supporting people of color um, in, within the, color guard drum corps community the numbers speak like if if this was an organization that truly supports black lives matter or any like any sort of integration of people of color then they would have they we wouldn't have been like all right like we have to pull our teeth for them to be like so black lives matter right like pulling it out of them like it, it's like, clearly this, in their values that's not it's not or clearly not in their values yeah and like there's certain blinders that can come on when you are just like a majority white institution and they were totally okay with just like taking our money and making sure the shows go on the road and like finishing the season and not really addressing it because they were it was never so apparent in their face even when mm-hmm. um yeah i like i wonder how many like I already know it's not a lot, but like how many people of color on their staff, how many undocumented people get to perform and be a part of these organizations Mm -hmm. or, um, yeah, like I don't ever, I don't ever think I had like a black person on staff except like that one week at Cadets and yeah, even at Radic, there wasn't anything. It was like all white people and at Blue Devil, same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was one, yeah, one week at Cadets. I teach with someone at Madison. Um, but I think, like, that that thing on Facebook keeps coming up about um, when, when was the first time you had a black teacher? And I... It's crazy. I think about it, and I, like, really, like, I, I had to really, like, really think about it. I had one, I had one early. I had one in kindergarten. Um, she was our art teacher. So I had her all throughout. So it was, and she, she brought her values. Like she, um, she was Jamaican and, um, she really made sure to embody like a Caribbean sort of culture, the way she dressed, the way she acted, like, you know, which I loved because it was something different, you know, it was something very unique and something really special. And so I think um, people don't appreciate the cultures of other people too. And like, I think that's an, it's an appreciation of the fact that they're different an appreciation to the fact that they bring something else to the table that isn't your cookie cutter, like white American. And I think that's so important because I don't know, like at the same, like, I don't know how to say this, I'm trying to make sure I'm respectful of how I, how I word things. Um, like the, the, I don't know, those are the things that you appreciate um, a little bit more, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm gonna stop there before I say the wrong thing. Yeah, um, the art that's produced in this community too is like, obviously like, it like one that connects to like how like these 
little bigger institutions are slow to like actually say something meaningful. Um, but it's just, yeah, like the whiteness is embodied everywhere. Um, and, you know, like I, like in 2014 with the cadets, we did that show about like American promise and about those three presidents and, um, it, like yeah it just like seeps throughout everything and i made a joke about like the gold sequence the purple floor and the adele song you know um and it's just it's cool and all but like i, I would love to see like more creatives of different heritages uh, of different ethnicities and upbringings creating art that was top 12 um and out there like um i think too like about like here in the Pacific Northwest, which all, which has like a very strong history of white nationalist organizing and like the Nazis all live out here in these mountains. Um, think about like the, there was a show done out here by a local high school about the suffragettes and it was very, very poorly done. <laughs> like low production value and not all that like moving or anything. And it was trying to say a lot without like really too much thought of it because as soon as you like look into like that wave of feminism, it was it was at still to their own benefit and didn't in include um, didn't include not white voices, you know? It was solely for their the white woman's benefit. Um, mm -hmm. and it like yeah, it was like being really loud and really, really blind um, and tone deaf. Um, so yeah, it'll be good to see how this like community does engage because like if it's just a statement from DCNWG, yeah, like it's that's disappointing. But like it's I empty. didn't expect more than that. Um, mm -hmm. But like it would be good to see what real what a real conversation within the community um, would look like. It's specifically to like the treatment of black indigenous people of color and like a personal pet peeve of mine, like when, I, I understand when a lot of people say this word, but like when white people say the word minority, like that like get, gets under my skin um, because like when we are not the minority, we are the global majority um, and very like, very quickly in this country, we will be, um, we will break even and we will be the majority in this country as well. Mm -hmm. um, like, and like the whole framing of something being minor or less than. Um, yeah, it's the inferior, like superior sort of thing. That, yeah, and um, the othering that that comes with that, like just call us people of color or just, yep. yeah, call us by our name. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it all starts too. Like, you know, it's, it's getting that stuff out there and like, cause it's, it's like a social norm of, you know, using like, Oh, the min minority, but like, you know, it's like from someone that, so the re like for me, the reason why I see, like, I've always seen it as a minority, but through just through having conversations with you, I've, I've learned, I've learned so much, you know, um, just because how I grew up, people of color were the minority. Yeah. You know, just because that's how the community I was brought up in. Um, still, I still live there. Still, still all the places I do live, um, they, it's, they're the minority. But it's like, all right, let's look on a, a bigger scale. Because at the end of the day, like, what are you going to confine yourself there always, you know? So, like, 
I love these conversations, you know, just because these are the conversations you need to have to learn things because like, if you don't, it's like, how can you um, learn about something you don't even know existed, you know, or like you don't even, it's like, you know what I'm saying? And I'd ra- I would rather engage with like you and my family and my friends like over phone calls like this um, than through like text where you have to like try to filter through somebody's tone and try to filter through your own emotions and everything. And like when it comes to like organizing too, like an invite on social media is never as productive as knocking on somebody's door and having a conversation um which is much harder but like you know the the benefits to that are so much greater so like kudos to the people who do have the trigger fingers to type type away like all the good rebuttals to um people online um but that's not going to be me and i'd rather do it like this and i would and i'm so like open to having these discussions with like all of my friends um and they eventually always come up because they're I'm always talking about it, you know? (laughs) Um, I think that's so important that it's so like on the forefront always, because like, like you said, like you can't, you can't learn more about something you don't even know existed, you know? Like, so I think it's so important that like, and, and don't get me wrong. Some people will find it uncomfortable. And they, yeah, definitely don't go to a black person and ask them to like educate you on these things. Cause mm -hmm. you know, it's, they've carried the burden for so long um, exactly. educate so it's yourself like, and how the conversations with your people mm-hmm. so it's like these are great things to, to have and people don't have like the the openness and comfortability of having these conversations that it's not it's not always like me and you having a chat and like me being like okay i don't i i'm uneducated i'm come like and i'm embarrassed about it and i'm uneducated but at the end of the day like all right, I'm taking the step to, to learn. And, for and like, you to, I would give you, you the t- grace to like, if you came with like something that was like inherently racist or inherently like a dog whistle, um, like, you know, because we're friends, I could be like, and Yo, because you, let's like, break this down. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, where I'm coming from is never meant to be um, disrespectful or um, I, I never mean to hurt anybody with my words. Yeah. And so then if, once if you some, see it, like your behavior and you're like, Oh, too. okay. Like I'm going to, all right, now I need to change the way I see this or the way I go about this or speak about this. And that's, that, that's how we unify. And yeah, that's that. Reason why buildings are burning is because this city, this state, would prefer preserving that white nationalism and that white supremacist mindset over arresting, charging, and helping to convict four officers who killed the black man. That is the reality of what we're dealing with. This is not just a few cops doing things across the country. This is not a good cop versus bad cop situation. This is Ahmaud Arbery being shot down by white men on the streets of Georgia, Breonna Taylor being killed in her home. This is in New York City where we were until freedom. We were just in New York fighting the police officers who in the name of social distancing were damn near killing black young people on our streets. This is a coordinated activity happening across this nation. And so we are in a state of emergency. Black people are dying in a state of emergency.
we cannot look at this as an isolated incident. The reason why buildings are burning are not just for our brother, George Floyd. We're, they're burning down because people here in Minnesota are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. And we are not responsible for the mental illness that has been inflicted upon our people by the American government institutions and those people who are in positions of power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. And so young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops, charge the cops, charge all the cops, not just some of them, not just here in Minneapolis, charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. Do what you say this country is supposed to be about, the land of the free for all. It has not been free for black people, and we are tired. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. We learned violence from you. The violence was what we learned from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better.